Gates open. Now presenting. Cause and creation. Hello everyone and welcome to Cause and Creation. I'm your host, Megan Martin here, with my lovely co-host, Janelle Megan. Say hi, Janelle. Hi, everybody. So we have a really exciting guest, but first, I just want to do a cat mom brag. Tilly, cat of the pod, just turned one years old last week. (gasps) She is an old kitty now. We had a nice little party for her with cat wine and with sashimi. And oh she had a wonderful time. She had a better birthday than I spoiled. did. Sashimi? <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> Same. I love it. And I love your little, I saw on Instagram, so everyone should go and follow Megan on Instagram to see these pics. But you had a picture with, like, Wildcat, and, like, she just looks like such a wild, like, princess in that photo, and I love it so much. She's my little jungle princess. Oh my god, I love No, her. she is so spoiled. We actually had to, like, we got her way too many toys, and now she's, like, very overstimulated and is, like, bouncing off the walls, so we have to, like, kind of hide the toys and only let her have, like, some of them at a Does time. Does she actually play with toys, though? Because always cats are, like, they just want a box and, like, a hair tie, and they'll just go nuts. So we got her box. It's, like, this little cardboard box that looks like a little house. <gasps> She is, it's so funny because she is tearing it to pieces. Like, she has already ripped the windows out of it. And so it's like you just look over and, like, you just see her entire head out of it, like, chewing on it. It's so funny. It's like that song. She looks like a little monster. What is that? Like, disrespect your surroundings. Yes. (laughs) She's destroying her house. (laughs) All right. Well, we have a really exciting guest today, Matthew Foster. Uh, He's a game designer. He's worked on a ton of incredible games, including... Probably the most, I'm not even going to say probably, the most anticipated game of 2020, Cyberpunk 2077. We had an awesome talk with him, and before we get to that, um, we're just going to hit a little bit of business. Um, As always, please email us, causingcreationpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts and inspirations. We'd love to share them with everyone. And also, as always, check out all the other shows on the network. And Janelle, you had something too, right? Yeah, we actually got a really lovely shout out from a friend of mine. His podcast, his name is Paul. We're actually going to be collaborating on a film um, whenever life oh, exciting. back to normal. Yeah, we've been talking about it for a little while and kind of, you know, sharing ideas back and forth and stuff. It's, it's going to be, it's going to be really interesting collaboration, but um, no, he was really sweet and he gave us a nice shout out on his podcast. So I wanted to share the love. His podcast is Anticipate Media. And they're really similar. They We kind of, both podcasts, this podcast and that podcast, all talk about creative things. Um, so I think you guys will like it. So go check it out. His latest um, episode is about trusting your gut, which we all know that's something I've been struggling with. So <laughs> I found it a really great thing um, mm-hmm. to dive into. So yeah, check it out. And thank you again, Paul. That was really, really nice. And I can't wait to work with you soon. Oh, awesome. No, and I um, I haven't had a chance to dive into his podcast quite yet. I've been a little off the grid. Um, I'll get into that later. But no, I, I like listen to a couple of the sound bites and it sounds really, really good. So definitely go check that out. And speaking of inspirational things... Janelle. Well, kind of along the same lines is I, I haven't even told you this yet, Megan. I just realized 
I started writing a script. Ooh. Yeah. What? <laughs> oh, that's um, awesome. It's, a, I can't, I'm not ready to share all the details, but I will say it's kind of romantic comedy, but it has some fantasy realism to it as well. And I, so the thing with me writing scripts is I tend to just go, like that's just the way I write is I just go by inspiration. I don't really outline. We've had this discussion like outline versus no outline, you know, like what's structure versus no structure when it comes to art and that type of thing. So I was really like, I had this idea, this simple idea in my head, like a really simple concept, let's say, like almost like a log line. I basically had the log line for the script in my head. And I was like, I really, and then I had all these like scenes, just like tiny scenes. And I was started to like write out the scenes. And I was like this, I have no idea how this scene is going to connect with this scene. I was just getting really overwhelmed. And typically I would just ignore that and just write and then like end up with a mess <laughs> and an unfinished product. And I was like, no, I actually really <laughs> like this idea. I really feel confident about it. So I am going to do an outline. So I searched on the internet for help on the outline. And I also, I want to, sh- I don't, <laughs> I doubt he listens to this still, but I had a friend of mine who's who was a screenwriter went to screenwriting school literally do like a 101 screenwriting one-on-one like how to write an outline like they broke it down like he would send me scripts he's like okay where's the midpoint and like all this stuff like really really tried hard with me to like teach me how to do an outline and I could not do it I could not like make my ideas like structured like that so shout out to him for trying because (laughs) I was not good at it but (laughs) I mean, you know, different things for different people. (laughs) Exactly. My brain just did not work like that. But I think I found something that works for me, or at least something that made me understand an outline in a way that I never understood it before. It's not a new video at all. I feel like a lot of screenwriters are going to be like rolling their eyes when I say what this is. But it's this YouTube channel, The Art of Story, and specifically the Outline Your Screenplay Parts 1 and 2. If you are struggling with outlining and like haven't really or just kind of given up like I had this is something that I really think you should watch because he actually breaks it down into several parts so it's not because I feel like sometimes an outline is just like yeah you have your you know your first act you have like the basics second act third act like you have it broken down and like really the focus is just on like that climax and like all of these other points but for this outline in particular it broke down even the act structure and so, like, so it was like kind of like the bigger piece of the pie and then the smaller pieces of the pie, which really, really helped me structure my story. I had an outline done in like an hour and a half for like my whole film. <laughs> like, Oh, wow. So I literally, all I have to do now, like when I go to write is I just pick a part of the story that I'm inspired by and I just start writing. And it's so easy. And for someone who used to be so anti-outline to say like, you need an outline, you actually really, really need an outline. And I think... I honestly think it helps keeping you on track as well with like actually writing because it's so easy I think as a writer when you're just like oh yeah when I get inspiration when I feel like writing I'll sit down and write but like the truth is like you need if you are like me and you have so many different projects going on and so many different things that you need to kind of juggle in your day-to-day it's actually really important to take that extra step and like schedule out time for writing and not just go and then when you're sitting down, you'll the inspiration will come because your outline's there to support that so that you're kind of on more of a time frame. So, I mean, I'm talking really confident now because it's all flowing really easily. <laughs> Talk to me in a month that I might not have finished this damn story. 
but hopefully I will. I mean, well, like, hey, with this outline, like, maybe this is going to be, like, the solution. Like, no writer's block. Well, and I think it's really cool, too, because I... I I love the way that you're describing this because I think that a lot of the times things like outlines can seem very confining, but it sounds like you're almost kind of making this map that's like allowing you to like write in a more sporadic way, Mm -hmm. you know, like just like find the places in it. And I think that that's really, really cool. Like it's like you kind of found a way to let yourself be more creative and just kind of follow your gut with it. It helps so much. Yeah, exactly. It, it really does, you know, I, I know that you love structure, so you're completely on the opposite side of me for the most part, but, like, structure does help. <laughs> like, that was my life lesson, I think, was, like, yeah, you need some structure, actually. You can't just be a chaotic um, individual who just, like, writes when they feel like writing. Um so yeah. Well, and then I'll say too, I mean, I think that I go a little overboard with structure sometimes too. And like, I do get very confined in it and like, it doesn't allow for a more creative nature. So I, I think it's awesome that you've found that middle ground. Yeah. You've cracked the code. No, you're going to teach writing one. I mean, I didn't crack the to- code. <laughs> the Art of Story cracked the code, which is a YouTube channel. So go give them love um, on their outline, your screenplay part one and two (laughs) i can't vouch for the other videos because i haven't watched them yet but i'm sure they're great too (laughs) (laughs) hey it's rachel host of wine dine and 69 a podcast about dating relationships sex and self-love have you ever had soul crushing anxiety waiting for a text after a date or have you had a sex question that you were too afraid to ask Wine, Dine, and 69 is a podcast that covers it all from dating to sex to relationships, both with partners and yourself. I talk to experts and ask all of the weird questions so that you don't have to. And I also talk to normal, everyday people to hear and amplify their personal stories. Check out Wine, Dine, and 69 on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Join me on this journey where we will learn, laugh, and explore. Let's keep talking. Um, so, is it is it my turn? Yes, I want to know what is inspiring you, Megan. Oh, okay, so I'm going to talk about my favorite thing in the whole world, the movie Tangled. Because I, oh. so I've had a, um, I'm just going to say a little bit of a, a challenging week. Um, just like uh, apartment things and work things and, you know, like just a lot of stuff like piled on lately and I wasn't really feeling like particularly inspired you know like one one of my other favorite movies is the heathers and one of my favorite lines from it is if you were happy every day of your life you wouldn't be a person you'd be a game show host and it's like you know we don't have to always be pushing like you know trying to like stay up and up and up like sometimes it's okay to just like you know take a break and like fall back into your comforts and things like that and so um i went back to uh my favorite movie tangled i've watched it three times in a row and this is a movie that I can literally like if the sound was off and there were no subtitles I could narrate the entire thing I know it like word for word and and I really wanted to like talk about it and like share it because I think that it is one of the most underrated Disney movies ever like it is one of the most groundbreaking Disney princess movies and I feel like people never really talk have you even seen it I've seen it yeah no I love Tangled 
I like I didn't know it was Disney though. For some reason, it had it. I I like thought it was a different. The, like I thought it was DreamWorks or something. Okay, so that's actually like fun because like first of all, like just from a technical standpoint, it was the first um, CGI animated film from Disney after they started collaborating with Pixar. So, like, it does seem kind of a little bit more outside of it, and it's because it was the first from that collaboration. And and the animation is gorgeous, and it, and it still really holds up, too, even though that movie came out a few years ago, and, you know, that technology moves very quickly. And it was also, I mean, again, like, just from that technical standpoint, like, this was also the first Disney princess film that was marketed to a full audience instead of just girls, like, that's why, that's why they called it Tangled instead of calling it Rapunzel. It was supposed to be on, like, Rapunzel Unbraided. But they really wanted this to be, like, a Disney princess movie for everyone. And so, you know, we had a lot more with, like, you know, our prince in it, Flynn Rider. And, I mean, you know, it's also kind of like a Disney prince film in a way because it's also his journey to becoming royalty as well. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, it, it's such a beautiful love letter to the old Disney princess movies, but just kind of like modernized a little bit. And and I also, I have, can I tell you like a really fun fact about it too? Yes. Okay, so like Zachary Levi plays Flynn Rider in it and he is one of, he is the second most beautiful man in the entire world after Tom Hiddleston, for sure. That, really? Um, okay. But like he plays... Oh, I think so. Is he the guy from Scrubs or am I getting him mixed up with somebody else? Oh, no, 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 no. He was from um, Chuck and he was in one of the Thor movies. Oh, okay. He's on Miss Maisel now. I'm like, I'm obsessed with him. Okay, okay. But but so whenever they were creating the character for Flynn Rider, they had all of the male-loving people within Disney Studios form, like, a focus group of, like, what women want from a smoking hot lead. Oh, my God. Which I think is, like, very fun. That's very Um, telling of Flynn Rider, for sure. I mean, you know, he's the bad boy with a heart of gold. But, I mean, it's also, I, I just, I think that it's such a phenomenal film, especially because it's, like I said, it is very much like a love letter to these old Disney princess movies, but, like, it kind of redefined the whole damsel in distress stereotype. Because, like, mm-hmm. I mean, there's never a point where she's like, no, I don't need anybody, I've got this. Like, she knows, you know, like, when she needs the push out of her comfort zone. And she knows, like, that she does need help and, like, someone to share the journey with. But also, she can take care of herself. And she's very clever. And, like, you know, she does start off as very naive. As she learns, like, she doesn't necessarily, like, toughen up. Like, she never loses, like, the optimism and the dreamer quality that she has. And she uses that. I mean, like, that's how they get out of most of the situations is her, like, appealing to, like, other people's humanity instead of just, like, getting tough and figuring a way out and, like, just being resourceful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, Mother Gothel is such a well-rounded and complicated villain. Like, she's not a puppy-skinning, dragon-shape-shifting, poison-apple-giving witch. Like, she's very manipulative and, like, charismatic, which is one of the first... That was, like, whenever we started kind of seeing the shift to villains who were, like, a little more complicated instead of just being, like, that, like, black-and-white, like, good-and-bad thing. Like, I just... I, I think it's such a brilliant film and I mean everybody talks about Frozen and everything but like this was actually one of the first Disney films like Disney princess films where it wasn't a love at first sight thing except for maybe Mulan I think that Mulan actually probably like did this before this but like it wasn't like love at first sight it was like they were friends and they were partners and then they fell in love because of that and like the prize 
at the end wasn't them getting together. It was her finding her family and like they formed a bond because they had accomplished things together. Like I just, I think it's such a beautiful movie. No, I, I, I love, love, love this movie too. I, I remember I watched it, re- rewatched after like a while ago. I was like at my parents' house, um, at my mom's house. We were watching it together and she had never seen it before. <laughs> and I love, like she, she's not, I mean, she'll watch cartoons and things like that, but she's, you know, like we're, we're adults. Like she's an adult. I'm an adult. Like we don't really seek out cartoons to watch, but it was just on. And we kind of put it on in the background. We're like chit chatting. And then by the end of it, we're both like crying at the end, like getting yeah. so emotionally invested. And I was like, how? This is so beautiful. And I mean, that shot in alone of her, like in the, like looking at the lights from like the boat is just, Oh, it's beautiful. It's just absolutely gorgeous. And I think like you have to appreciate that for just like, you know, animation aspect alone. And I, yeah, we all love Flint Rider, of course. Of course. (laughs) He's like, he's like the better Gaston. (laughs) Even like that boat scene too. Like there was something like so beautiful in it that I feel like just kind of like hit a little different now that I'm older. Cause I do think it's fun to like, revisit these movies when you're older and everything and like you know it's like kind of like how like all the like kids like relate to Ariel and then whenever you get older you're like no I kind of like feel bad for your dad like you're kind of a handful (laughs) but there's like this really lovely like moment whenever they're in the boat and he's like asking her because she looks really nervous and he's like are you okay and she was like I've been dreaming about this my whole life And she was like, what if it's not what I want it to be? And he was like, well, what if it is? And she was like, well, that's worse. She was like, then what do I do? Like, I got my dream. And he was like, well, you get to find a new one. It is lovely. I I fully agree. And I think it's also really, you know, you mentioned in the beginning that you weren't having the best week. And I do think movies like that are such a good comfort movie um, as well. Because it's just like, it's that reminder that like, it's, you know, it is, the Disney messages are problematic sometimes, but at the end of the day, they are about dreaming big, and they are about having hope, and faith, and exploring, and about things that are really, really beautiful, and I think that makes it a really good comfort movie, too. No, absolutely. I also, <laughs> I think it's the only uh, Disney movie with, like, a stabbing scene as well, just to, like, bring that a, down a, a notch, what? too. See? I forgot how, like, violent it actually is, too. Oh my god, I was like, this just took, like, a a Game of Thrones turn. Which, like, Disney kind of, like, does that anyways. Like, they're always, like, a little too much with the... The number of Disney movies that have, like, either decapitation or almost decapitation is insane. Oh, yeah, they get dark, for sure. Like, I actually, I heard that that's the reason. Um, It's, like, a rule, like, with movies that, like, um, decapitation on screen is an automatic R rating, and they had to put that in just because Disney kept doing it and then still trying to, like, call their movies G-rated. <laughs> That's a real thing? That's so disturbing. Oh, my God. <laughs> but it happens. Well, I mean, like, it, there's, like, three of them in Frozen. <laughs> like. Yeah. I get. I, I don't what? have anything to say to that. <laughs> <laughs> Because I was like, I like, I always try to think about how to defend them, and I'm like, no, there's no defending decapitation. I'm not, I'm not going there, Disney. I'm sorry. It's like Disney, you make beautiful things, um, but sometimes you just need to chill. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they're. I feel like they are getting darker with things. Like, I feel like, like not darker, but they are getting more like mature. I guess like the more recent Disney movies, like Onward and Soul, like they're all about like death and like the afterlife and like like. Yeah, kind of like, Onward like, it's, was tragic. I couldn't watch it. <laughs> I 
could try it, I couldn't. I mean, I really, I really liked it, but it was, like, very... But, I mean, you know, I guess it's kind of like what we talked about with um, Dan's love, too. Is, I mean, like, you know, I, I feel like we do try to, like... I, I feel like we underestimate, like, how much, like, kids can handle stuff like that because I mean like you know like Coco was a movie that I was kind of like I feel like this is a little much for kids but I mean you know like they love it and you know like they they do understand it so yeah and maybe it's good to get that kind of exposure early I don't know I I obviously can't speak from a parent point of view but maybe you know maybe there's a value in that of exposing kids to that kind of things because it is a part of life you know and I'm sure it's comforting yeah. for some kids that have had to go through that, unfortunately, when they're very young. Well, I, and I guess maybe that's more it. Like, maybe it's not for everyone, but, like, you know, maybe it is nice to have, like, because, you know, sometimes people do experience really hard things like that whenever they're children. So, I mean, like, maybe it's about, like, the representation of, like, just being able to, like, kind of see themselves in definitely. it, I guess. No, definitely. And I think that's totally valid. And I think it's good that Disney is, you know, diversifying things and not just writing stories about princesses and love yeah well um I don't have a good transition for this but we are gonna move on to our interview with Matthew Foster he is really really incredible and just his story about how he got into game design is really really amazing and I I know everybody wants to hear about cyberpunk he talks a lot about cyberpunk but he also talks about like a lot of the other elements to game design and things like that. You guys are going to absolutely love this. So now presenting Matthew Foster. Cue the applause. Okay, guys, we are here today with professional game designer Matthew Foster. With seven years of working on many projects such as World of Drift, Mafia 3, The Bureau, NBA 2K12, and of course, being a senior game designer on the most anticipated game of 2020, Cyberpunk 2077, Matt is a powerhouse leader within the gaming industry. From building worlds to ironing out details and features, he is the reason that you have such a great time playing some of your favorite games. Thank you so much for coming on with us, Matt. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for that intro. That's awesome to hear all that stuff listed out. Um, I'm really stoked to be here. Awesome. No, we're, we're so happy to have you. And I guess we'll start off by just kind of addressing the elephant in the room. I would just love to know, like, as someone who does this for a living, how does it feel to have played a role in creating one of the biggest games of, I mean, honestly, probably the decade with cyberpunk? <laughs> uh, it feels good. Uh, not going to lie. It, it's a great feeling. The Cyberpunk had a huge development team. Um, it had a huge history. It got its hands into all sorts of different kinds of, uh, you know, news and culture. And we got to work with Keanu Reeves. We got to work with incredible sound designers and uh, producers of, of an incredible soundtrack. And the the team that I worked with in Poland, the game designers, the artists, the engineers is, you know, top notch. So it was, a, it was an amazing feeling. Of course, the launch had its complications, as did the development. So there's, it's not all sunshine and rainbows, but uh, to be to have my hands on on something so influential and, and to be able to be part of something so big was was really special. No, absolutely, and I mean, you're even kind of mentioning. I, I know that the launch was kind of met with those mixed reviews, and, and a lot of people have talked about like the back and forth between like you know the, there was so much anticipation for the game. I, I feel like there there was a lot of just trying to get it done in a, I mean, just worldwide a very difficult time. 
I, I would actually, if you don't mind talking about it, and if you can't, that's totally fine. But how different was the shift of working on it for, I mean, you know, it was in development for years and then COVID hit. Like, were there any like substantial changes that you'd like to talk about? Yeah. Um, well, first I could tell you, I didn't start at the beginning of development. I joined the team um, uh, about a year and a half before launch. So I worked there for uh, in Wrocław, Poland, um, for only a few months before COVID hit. Uh, however, even in that short amount of time, I could tell you the, the, the shift was dramatic. There's a pretty much every game studio that I've worked at, there's a, a real culture of passing information, not necessarily through official channels, but you know, turning to the people next to you and being asking them, hey, what do you think of this? Or uh, I'm working on this. Do you have any input? Um, hey, did you hear that uh, we've got this feature coming in? It's not always particularly efficient. When you no longer have that ability to turn to the people next to you, you have to find a new way to fill those channels to to get that information out. And I think that most companies struggle with that at the beginning, um, as as we certainly did. We needed to find a way to be able to get that sort of, particularly as a design group, get this sort of constant feedback as uh, we would expect in, in the office in a digital sense. And so what ended up happening is we would just sort of, instead of calling someone with intention, we would sort of open general calls so people could just join and you could share a screen very easily, almost as if you were able to call people over to your desk as you would at the office. It was it was a bumpy road. It was a, uh, there was a bunch of trials and tribulations that we went through to to try and make it work. And it it there's no doubt it impacted the development process, but we were able to find ways to make it work. No, and I mean you definitely did. I, I have to I have to tell you, I think that the only time that I have ever cried on a game before Cyberpunk was the first time I finished Kingdom Hearts <laughs> whenever I was in middle school, and just. I'm not going to give like spoilers, but the stuff with Jackie, yeah. like I actually had to like put it down <laughs> because I was sobbing so hard and missing things that were coming later. I mean, yeah. it just all, all the work that was put into it definitely showed. I mean, just the the overall like world building and the character design and everything was absolutely incredible. I've just, I don't know if this is appropriate for me to say, but I'm, I'm glad to hear you cried. I mean, that's <laughs> not that I wanted to make you cry or we wanted to make anyone cry, but I'm glad there was such an emotional attachment there. Our writing team and our animation team absolutely killed it. There's no oh, doubt. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm wondering too, I, I know that like, it's a big thing with, um, I, I'm more familiar with like the film and television world where I know that uh, something like uh, the Marvel, the MCU is very, very influenced by fan opinion like they they bring characters back or expand on things and stuff because of like you know audience opinions and stuff like that how much were you guys taking in essentially just like the feedback that came with like the anticipation like leading up to the launch and during it yeah uh well we certainly i think particularly the design group i can't speak for everybody but uh the reason we're making games is for our audience to have fun with it um, we take player feedback very seriously. Uh, and when I say we, I don't, I don't just mean cyberpunk. I mean, any, any good designer or anybody, it, actually, this isn't just game related. I think anyone in design field has to get feedback from their, their user base, right? The, mm -hmm. it's really important to understand how someone's going to use your product and what they're looking for in it. Uh, of course, with, with such a wide reach as we had with, with cyberpunk, there were a lot of, <laughs> a lot of opinions, a lot of suggestions, um, we had to sort of sort through things that we could actually do. We had to sort through things that were 
um, within our budget or sort through things that were just um, a little bit too outlandish for us to to really dive deep in. Yeah, we, we saw a lot of stuff on Twitter. We saw a lot of stuff on, on YouTube. We reached out to members of the community. The community really helped us figure out the identity of the game as we were developing it because uh, we got to see how excited people were about you know neon lights and and living in this dingy dun you know society that is George Orwell or Orwellian an Orwellian society and um, and trying to understand how it was going to be like in the future of this dystopia we got people were just so freaking excited about it that uh, it became infectious for us designing it as well and and we just wanted to get more and more into getting all these people who were so excited getting them to be even more so totally well and just for the sake of like defining it, I mean, what exactly did you like? What, what role did you play in this one specifically? Yeah, sure. Um, so I started as senior designer there and just started picking up things as I went along. Um, ended up focusing on combat mostly, specifically uh, ranged combat. I designed all the. I, I was part of the team that designed all the ranged weapons in the game. I was able to get oh, wow. my hands on melee combat as well. Uh, we we had sort of um, what's the correct way of saying this we uh, it was a bit of a rushed process with with the melee combat at the end there but um we we got our hands in on that as well and uh i focused as well on on some hacking and and major gameplay elements um you mean like the hacking within the game yeah uh not any hacking outside of the game (laughs) (laughs) we can get to that that later i'm um i'm a little starstruck i think that that was probably one of the cooler aspects of this game was the hacking. So that's amazing. That's, that's great. Yeah. So Patrick Vitovsky was one of the designers who worked the most on the hacking. And I was able to work on some of the devices that the player interacted with through hacking. So like explosives and um, occasionally a little bit of work with mechs and, and cameras and things like that. Oh my gosh. That's the systems were deep. There, it, was, it was some really cool stuff that we were able to do with gameplay, um, particularly around combat that I'm I'm really proud of. No, that's that's incredible. I'm I'm curious. So especially just because like this game was really delving into like a different level of I mean even combat than you usually see in games. I mean especially the, the hacking was like such a cool element to like get to play with within this like cyberpunk world. So I I'm curious whenever it came to designing those aspects of it was it more aesthetic first or like technical first whenever it comes to like incorporating stuff like that? Uh, do you mean specifically around design? Yeah. That's a good question. I think that we were split a little bit down the middle. Some people really wanted to focus on um, getting things to really fit well into the world and aesthetically match the incredible environment art and, and uh, story building that the writing team had done. But as gameplay designers, our main uh, focus is just the the fun factor, is uh, the game feel. So what we really focused on was, was just trying to get things as fleshed out and competitive as possible in terms of when you're comparing Cyberpunk, it's a first-person shooter. People have expectations around first-person shooters because there's been so much work done in that genre over the past 20 years. Uh, we wanted to be able to compete on on a competency level with some other FPS games. And as this was City Project's first FPS, that was we knew that was going to be a challenge. And I think for most of us in gameplay design, we we like that challenge. We, we were excited to see if we could really pull that off. And um, the aesthetics, the sort of secondary animation and motion on a lot of the guns, the uh, really futuristic sights that we had that were 
you know, very focused on the techno realism as opposed to science fiction. Um, our art team did a great job in grounding it in the world, but the actual fundamental gameplay design that we did really was just to try and push um, our game and our engine to be competitive with some of our contemporaries in the in the industry. I have a question kind of along those lines, um, just kind of looking at it from not really having any background on game design and kind of the research process that goes into some of this combat and a weapon and even hacking. Um, are you basing this off of like real life things or are you kind of like, do you have to do any kind of on the grounds research on weapons and hacking <laughs> and that type of thing? I don't, I don't know if that's a silly question, but I feel like that might be no, no. part of the job. <laughs> no, it's a great question. And um, the, the short answer is yes. The long answer is sometimes. So I'm, I, let me give you an example from Mafia 3, uh, one of the first um games that I, I worked on we had a we were we were creating a game about a black protagonist in 1960s new orleans it was a game primarily um trying to deal with issues of race uh the development team was primarily white uh, myself included part of our job was to create systems for the game that helped the player feel as if they were in the place and time that we were asking them to be in uh, which was how did it feel to be in our case a large black man running through the city of New Orleans in um, 1960s America. We, I don't have the credentials to be able to answer that question, nor do, nor did a lot of my, um, my coworkers. So we had to do a lot of research, and that included interviews with people who lived through the era down in New Orleans. People were sent out there to, to interact with people, to really understand the, uh, the fabric of the um, society back then. Um, we were able to get testimonials, and we also were able to um, hire folks who understood black experience a lot better, uh, people of color. That research allowed us to, I, I could really only speak for me, but I think all of us, allowed us to have a much more realistic understanding of how the player should feel. And so that research led to one of the systems that I worked on um, with another designer named Adan Chachuala and uh, Seth Rosen uh, worked on some systems that made it so that there were 10 districts in the city that we created. Each district had a financial class and a racial uh, makeup of the population. And when the player was in a predominantly white affluent area, if they were um, engaged in any sort of activity that the police might consider illegal, the cops would show up like that very quickly. However, if wow. they were in a uh, lower economic area with a predominantly black population, um, as shown by a lot of the environment art that was created around there and the uh, visuals for the characters, um, if they if the player engaged in a crime, the police would take much longer to respond. And that's just that's just one thing that came out of some of that research uh, to try and no, absolutely, and I, and I think that that's an incredible inclusion. I mean, especially I just. I mean, not even from a game perspective, but just as somebody who is very involved in true crime myself, like, I mean, that's extremely realistic. And I, and I think that it's so cool that you guys did the research and like actually spending the time to like really create these worlds as realistically as possible. So I think that that's awesome. Uh, yeah, I, I thought so too. And I think that the best um, designers that I've worked with are those who really want to have a foundation in reality no matter what they're designing so if you're making a game about spaceships maybe you drive a bunch of cars or if you're um 
making a game like Cyberpunk where you have to design weapons, what we did is we, we did end up going out to a firing range and we shot some um, some weapons from, you know, old World War II stuff to more modern day um, just to get a sort of a weight and a feel. And um, through that research, it really helped me understand there was this one concept when holding a gun called Sway, um, which, by the way, I should mention I'm not pro-gun. Um, I don't, I don't, uh, I'm not a big fan of the second amendment. Uh, I no interest in getting too down that road politically, but as a job, um, I needed to make this feel real. And, uh, I, uh, picked up this gun and I found that when I was holding it and aiming it down the sights, my, you know, I'm not a huge guy. I don't have super strong arms. So it was kind of hard to, uh, to keep the sight straight. And what that, led to was us building in a system that made it so that the front of the gun sort of swayed a little bit when you were aiming down the sights. No, of course. And I, and I think that that's even, I mean, I guess kind of something to touch on is that I, I feel like since cyberpunk is something that doesn't exactly exist yet. Um, <laughs> well, hopefully never. What exactly was the research? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah right. <laughs> so like, what exactly did the research for cyberpunk look like if you're essentially trying to make something that's within a world that like, how, how do you find realism in a world that isn't real? Uh, that's a, another great question. I think a large part of that, um, I, maybe you're aware of this. I, I'm just going to put it out there anyway, is that um, Cyberpunk 2077 is actually based on a tabletop RPG. Um, I, I really hope I don't get this wrong. I think it's Cyberpunk 2020. I always forget the date, but um, it was... Oh, I think it's actually Cyberpunk, Brad. I actually did a campaign for this network. Right, so on I think that's the one that we came out with with this game, but there was an original really? one. Really? Yeah, so that, and that, we worked with the creator of that. Um, his name I am forgetting right now, unfortunately. And we, this is essentially a sequel to that tabletop game that the board of directors of CD Projekt played way back in the day and always had a dream of one day making a sequel to. So... A lot of that research for Cyberpunk actually came from just studying the source material of Cyberpunk 2020, and that all came out of the brilliant mind of um, the man who, very unfortunately, his name I am forgetting, <laughs> uh, the, yeah. the creator of Cyberpunk 2020. So yeah, in this case, we, we got a little bit lucky because a lot of that research was already done for us. Uh, we just had to work with him to create a new storyline and figure, sort of um, project how things would evolve. In terms of you know firearms and whatnot, we, we took the guns that were in 2020 and we sort of predicted based on which corporations were really big at the time, the cyberpunk world, how things would uh, evolve from there. We were able to sort of picture in our heads and, and move forward on an artistic side. No, that, that's incredible. And I guess like um, we, we would really like to move on to like just you and not just cyberpunk. Sure, yeah. So um, I guess I just want to open it up to like, is there anything else that you want to say about that specific game? And also I do have a question. Um, just my mom is probably one of Keanu Reeves' biggest <laughs> fans ever. And she will murder me if I don't ask you what he is, like how it was working with him. I, if you got to like actually work with him. I unfortunately, I wasn't able to meet the guy. Um, I didn't have the pleasure, but I was able to speak with a lot of people who did have direct contact with him and everybody said the exact same thing, which is that he's, he's just a darling. He's just so sweet and so interesting. and so cool. Like the character he plays is kind of a uh, John. I don't, you know, I won't spoil anything for anything for anybody, but Johnny's kind of a douche. Keanu is just yep. so not. <laughs> Keanu is the opposite of the character he's playing. Oh, the man rides the subway train. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize that was the bar, but that makes sense. All right. Well, I would actually like, 
I really, especially you are the first um, video game designer that we've ever had on this show. And I would love to talk to you about like, I mean, first of all, what got you into game design? And also just, it is such a broad field, how you kind of like pinpointed the kinds of things that you wanted to do in it. Yeah, it's uh, it's a crazy industry, really. It's um, It's still pretty young. Video games have only been made for like, what is it, 40 years now? 1979, I think was one of the first ones, 1980. Um Wow, that's so, so crazy to think about. <laughs> right? And things have evolved really quickly and um, and everything is changing all the time. There's more resources available to people now to get into game design than were available to me when I graduated school um, or college. Uh, oh man, how many years ago was that? Seven years ago or something like that now. So yeah, I uh, when I got into it, it was still very much um, growing as it is today. And uh, I went to school uh, to... I was originally going to be an environmental engineer, and then um, I, uh, pretty sure I could say this on this podcast. If not, you tell me if this is an issue. But I, I just got really high one night. Uh, I smoked a big bowl. And, oh my uh, gosh! No, you can cuss on here. You yeah. can talk about drugs. It's totally <laughs> okay, fine. cool. Um, <laughs> like I said, casual. Yeah, right, great. <laughs> um, yeah, I just got really stoned one night when I was at college, and um, my whole life, I had been playing a ton of video games. It was my my main form of like socializing with my my friend group. Uh, I found games as a way to connect to people uh, was was really important to me growing up, and um, I knew I had a passion for it. And so this one night, I go out and think about being an environmental engineer. I'm not really sure yet. I get stoned. I go back uh, to my my uh, dorm room and I fall asleep. And I had this really vivid dream of running my own game company. And I like saw the whole game that I wanted to make. I woke up, I wrote the whole thing down. And two days later, I went and changed my major to media studies and computer science. I would say in general, it's a really bad idea to base your life off of whatever dreams you have when you're stoned. But in this case, it worked out really well. You are literally the opposite of a cautionary tale, but that's totally fine. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to be a bad influence here, but it, it did work out pretty well. Um, and it just felt right. Uh, as soon as I sort of landed on that, I realized that, you know, I... I I love playing games. I love the creative freedom that comes with uh, a virtual world, and uh, and I like allowing you know creating things that uh, help people have fun. I think the world's uh, kind of a fucked up place a lot of the time, and when you take a moment and you know forget about things for a little bit and you play a game, you get this moment of escape that I think is really important for people, particularly during uh, COVID. Oh, 100%. Yeah, it's, it's been huge. Uh, the main way I was living in Poland, like I said, for while well, I was working at a uh, CD project, and um, the main way that I connected with my friends back home was just by playing video games with them. No, I mean, me, me and my friends as well, and my, my roommate and his friends as well. I mean, it's just, it's such a beautiful connector, and it's a level of like escapism, like they, they really are important. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's, it's such an important art form, for sure. I'm preaching the choir here, but I totally agree. Um, and <laughs> yeah, I so I changed my major and then uh, started applying to jobs. I sent out, I think, literally 200 applications for internships that summer um, and got rejected by uh, two of them and didn't hear back from 196 of them. So <laughs> it was just all, you know, nobody wanted anything to do with me. But there was this... Um, 
one woman named Brooke O'Brien, who was a, an HR rep at, um, at 2K Games, who got back to me and said, you know, we're not really sure right now, maybe in a few months. And that was like, you know, the shining ray of hope. I was like, okay, I'm going to grab onto that and run with it. And uh, I happen to be lucky enough to live, my parents live sort of close to uh, to 2K, their head headquarters. Uh, I came home for the summer. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a job. I really wanted to work there. And I told my dad, I was like, I don't know what to do. Uh, what do you think I should do? Should I go up there and just like talk to them? And he was like, absolutely. Do you still have your suit from your bar mitzvah? Uh, I said, yeah, I do. It doesn't fit anymore. He said, it doesn't matter. You have to wear a suit. So I like got into the suit that was four sizes too small. I looked like, you know, the Michelin man bursting out of everything. I was going to say, if it was from your bar mitzvah, I hope you grew, I grew a, a lot. <laughs> it really did not fit. But uh, it was extremely important, apparently, to wear a suit. My dad's a little bit old-fashioned that way. And um, I borrowed my mom's car, which had, like, stickers on it from when I was a kid. And, like, I just looked like a lunatic. And um, <laughs> drove up to 2K with my uh, – printed out a resume and had it in hand. And um, much to my luck, at that point, 2K security was pretty lax. And I kind of just walked through the front door up to the front desk and, and said to the woman there – Bless her soul. She was probably terrified looking at me in this outfit. Uh, I told her, like, I really need a job, and here's my resume, and I'm not going to leave until you do something with it. She could have put it in the trash and told me to get out, and I absolutely would have. But uh, she, you know, I don't know what possessed her to do this, but she faxed it to that woman, Brooke O'Brien, the HR rep. And on my drive home, I got a phone call from her about 20 minutes later being like, oh, you're pretty persistent. You want to come in for an interview? And kind of the rest is history. They brought me on to interview at the NBA team at Visual Concepts. And I was pretty tall. And they were like, have you played basketball before? And I was like, yeah, totally. Well, in the back of my head, uh, knowing that I'm just garbage at sports. And yeah, that summer, I ended up working on uh, NBA 2K12. And every summer after, I was able to get internships at 2K until finally I graduated. They hired me back on as an operations assistant, worked my way up after hours to get into design, made my way there and then I've now traveled the world with it. That's amazing. It's not a normal trajectory and again is not meant to be. No, it's the plot of Catch Me If You Can. (laughs) It's not at all, but it's amazing. I certainly got very lucky um, and I don't, like my success is almost entirely comes down to those few moments of like people helping me and um, like that woman, Brooke, gave me the chance and uh, ever since, you know, people have reached out to me and given me opportunities to improve myself. And the kindness of others is really what has allowed me to succeed. And um, that is really important in any field. And I think it's really important for us as creatives to pat- pay that forward. No matter what your field is, people want to get into games, they want to get into film, they want to get into music. And the best way for them to do that is by people like us who are already established to open our arms to them and say, you know, come, get, we'll give you a shot. No, of course. The only way we get up the ladder is with help. And I and I love that. I love everything that you're saying. I know I know that Janelle has some really great questions for you about like more of the collaborative process of this, but just before we get to that, if you don't mind, I have I have two more questions for you. Um specifically, you are working in like so many different aspects of this. Like, I mean, in all the games that you work on, I like, you know, I know in Worlds of Drift, you were literally working on, like, ship components. <laughs> yeah. And then, then in Mafia 3, like, you were designing, like, I mean, essentially, like, all of the characters and vehicles. So I, I'm just wondering, like, you know, th- there is such a widespread of the things that you're creating with this. Is there anything 
Oh, hey, also, I just have to, I have to like point out too that like you specifically helped on like the lip movement of characters in <laughs> the um the NBA game. Yeah, that was which is just. <laughs> That, that was a tough task. They, they had like one tool. They just needed somebody who had some time to like go through and manually move the the phenoms, which is like the um, the sort of lip shapes that are possible for different uh, words. And uh, they were like, oh, we'll give it to the intern. We'll just go, go let him run with it. <laughs> it worked out okay. That's amazing. Well, I guess like just th- there are so many aspects to what you're doing, is there any part of it that maybe resonates with you more or you just at the very least enjoy doing more? So I've, again, I've been very lucky to have had the opportunity to work in a lot of different things, as you were saying. And um, through that, I've been able to sort of pinpoint that what I really love is, we call it the, the player feel, uh, the the systems, the gameplay. They When a player is sitting down and they hold a controller in their hands, how does it feel to do basic things like move? How does it feel to fight? How does it feel to run? How does it feel to um, discover something, to dig, whatever whatever the action is? Um, and so I've sort of been able to hone down my specialty to uh, sort of fine-tuning gameplay feel. And um, I think the reason that I like that so much is it's, be- it's what I love in games. Uh, I find that particularly to, to use um, movement as an example, if it's fun to move in a game, everything else just sort of follows that along. Like if you can get the basic sort of movement of just walking from point A to point B, or in the case of um, Insomniac's Marvel's Spider-Man, to swing from um, the rooftops of New York City, if just, or Marvel's New York City, if you're just going from point A to point B and that alone is enjoyable, then so much more of the game is open up for the player to enjoy because they're not frustrated with the basics. And so I think it's a really, it's that introductory period. It's, it's that gateway into the game that is, is really important to get right. And, and that's the challenge that I like. No, I, I think that that's incredible. Yeah, I think this is such an interesting conversation because it's a lot of things that I feel like we don't always think about when we're playing a video game. I, I don't know, but you make him play more games than I do. I, I would definitely say it's something that we take for take granted. for granted. Yeah, that's a much better word for it. And I think it's like the same with like filmmaking as well, where there's so many pieces of filmmaking like that other people take for granted. It's like I'm totally seeing like a different perspective on this completely different industry. So this is a really really interesting conversation for me. Yeah, it's. Um... It kind of changes. Uh, maybe you've experienced this as you've been talking to more and more people for this podcast or you uh, being involved in film yourself or, or whichever creative process. Uh, it changes the way you play, changes the way you interact with the media. For me, I, I actually have a, a tough time just playing a game now. Now that I've, you know, now that I've seen how the sausage is made, I, I'm thinking a lot about when I'm moving around like, oh, they did this or this mechanic or oh, I wonder if I you know, jump off this ledge, but not this ledge. Will I take fall damage or not? Um, so you, you end up sort of engaging with the media in a different way too, which is, uh, I think for me, it's kind of cool. Uh, there's some downsides to it. Cause I can't like sit down and just play through a game and really lose myself unless the game's like, you know, totally drawing me in. Um, like I used to before I worked in games, but, but it's also, it unlocks this sort of different way of thinking about things. Yeah, definitely. I think I have the same experiences sometimes when I'm watching a movie and I'm like, oh, that's a really cool shot or wonder what right. actor, you know, wonder if this was their audition scene. You know, there's so many examples of that that I think a lot of people can resonate with that. Like once you're behind the scenes of something, you are going to view it in a different lens and there's 
definitely pros and cons to that. Well, I'd love to ask then, I mean, like, what's your favorite game to play? <laughs> that is, uh, I, I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> oh, can I, can I ask? I, I, I understand why. Can I ask, like, what's your favorite, like, childhood Right, game? okay, yeah, that I can answer. Is that Absolutely. Fair? I mean, it's all. There we go. <laughs> the thing about games is they all they all can offer something different, right? But for me, the, the ga- first game I fell in love with was Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. It's Aww. it's the, I, I play it every year. I go back and uh, my, my best friend from childhood, uh, his name's Wynn Pomerantz. We're still in touch. We actually I just hung out with him earlier today. And uh, we played Nintendo 64. We played some Super Smash Bros. on it. Something about that game really hit us both. And I think it was a combination of the story that it was telling, the mechanics and all that, but also the fact that he and I were able to connect over that game really cemented it as like a really special place or gave it a special place in my heart. Um, so yeah, the Legend of Zelda. And that series is it's just the best. I, I, I absolutely love Zelda and uh, most of what Nintendo's putting out. But um, but yeah, that's that's my favorite one from childhood. Right now, I'm playing hours and hours and hours of Valheim. This is Viking game that's just taken over my life. Um, I'm playing with some friends and we're building. Oh, I've heard such good things about uh, it. I haven't I haven't played it quite yet. I'm I'm still. There was a new Stardew Valley update. Oh so yeah, that's a little bit my jam right now. <laughs> that's but. great. Um, and yeah, they they both sort of are just time sinks. You know, like you could just lose time and well, I've, I've lost time playing stardew valley and valheim i don't know if you feel the same way about stardew but uh, oh no 100 yeah. percent. you should have seen me in quarantine that stardew was the only thing that got me through <laughs> yeah that's um well i oh go ahead no it's, it's a great game um what's your favorite oh i mean like i said stardew valley is probably my favorite i've been playing like disco elysium and everything yeah. recently and, and i love like the stuff that cd project red puts out I love Skyrim. That's probably yeah. one of my favorite games of all time. I could lose my life to that game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I get, have. I get the same, I get the same sort of feeling playing that as I do with this other game I just mentioned, Valheim. It's that same sort of aesthetic and sort of lose yourself in it. Um, yeah, it's it's great. I love. I mean, everybody's got a different answer for that question, um, and everybody likes different stuff, and that's why the industry is able to grow so wide right you know stardew valley and skyrim live in the same exist in the same space and they're completely different games oh 100 yeah it's it's i love that i really do and i guess you could say the same thing about most media i mean you've got uh, classical art and modern art and contemporary art and all sorts of movies and, and genres but i guess for games it's just what i know about it i love that it can all coexist no, of course. Well, I am like, just since we have you specifically on, um, I do feel like game design is something that's a little more collaborative in the creative process. Whereas like, I mean, you know, it's like a writer sitting at his laptop all alone. Like, I mean, you know, there are teams and teams of people working on things. What What's it like working in that kind of an environment where it's not just you, it's so many people's influence on something. Yeah, uh, that is, uh, this is what I t- I've talked to a bunch of um, students and kids who are interested in getting into game design, and I usually tell them the same thing, which is that the hardest part of game design is uh, managing people. Um, when you're designing a system, when you're designing um, a feature, whatever it is you're designing, it's it's player-facing. It's, it's all about the user, right? 
Um, and you may have the best idea for something, but at the end of the day, you have to pitch something to your colleagues. You have to find a collaborative solution. You have to maybe pitch it to your lead, your head of department, whatever it is. Um, and something that you may really fall in love with is something that, you know, people, designers like to talk about, like, oh, this is my baby. The, the guns of this game are like what I've worked on so hard. It's hard not to get to attach to that stuff. But at the end of the day, it's, it's not about you. It's not about uh, the things that you love. It's, it's about what's best for the game. And it's about what's best for the team and, and finding solutions that uh, incorporate so many different viewpoints. There's a real difficulty and satisfaction that comes out of trying to, to find those solutions. That's incredible. I think a, a large part of it is um, uh, to, to be a really good and effective designer. I would imagine this applies for most creative fields, but particularly for video games. Um, you have to be able to communicate. You have to be able to communicate with people in a way that they understand. And uh, for me, a large part of that is visual, either creating prototypes on your computer that people can play around with themselves to say like, hey, so how does this feel? Like we've talked about it, but now that you have it in your hands, can you really picture it? or drawing something or creating like a short animated video, whatever it is, and helps people visualize it. You can really go a long way to help with the, the communication aspect. Um, you can write up pages and pages of documents, but everybody's got their own imagination. And um, it's important, but it's, it's not necessarily the best way to get everybody on the same page. Game design is, is a very small part of game development. And I don't know if this is really true, but it, within the game for the for the wider population but within the game development um, industry designers are sort of given a lot of credit for the success of a game um, you know it, it, it takes sometimes hundreds and thousands of people to to work on something and create the city and create the art and um, I think it's really important to sort of cut down on that narrative of that there's one head this one visionary this one designer um, or even just like a team of designers that's driving everything. In the most successful projects that I've worked on, um, and something that uh, my old boss Hayden Blackman used to say is like, and I think I've heard this elsewhere as well. Uh, good ideas can come from anywhere, uh, and that's really true. A lot of the design process is about talking with people who are not designers. Some of the best ideas come from people who are don't have their head, you know, buried in this stuff all day long, and they take one look at it and they're like. Why didn't you do this? And you're just like, oh, damn, of course. Uh, and that's it's coming from colleagues, like um, you know, people who are professional artists or professional programmers, and they get their hands on something design-wise, and they have great ideas and great input. Um, but that's also coming from people who don't even play video games. My uh, my mother and father do not play games, and I've asked them for feedback on some design stuff occasionally. Nothing that would get me in trouble for NDA reasons, but on some of my own projects. Uh, and they give incredible feedback because they're like, I don't even know how to use this controller. What do any of these buttons do? And then I realized, oh, of course, I need to explain to the player more. I, I can't assume that everybody has the same level of knowledge. So I think it's really important to fully grasp the the true way of, of designing a really great video game is, is to be as collaborative as possible with everybody. I think that's really, oh, that's amazing. That's like really amazing advice, I think, for just creatives in general is like, to get these outside opinions and to always look at creative issues or design issues like from that totally unique perspective. Cause I think that's totally valid that, you know, I, I don't remember who said it, but it's, you know, you cannot solve problems with the same thinking that created them. So you kind of need to yeah. look outside the box and the fact that you're able to get 
all sorts of different feedback and take that in to create something, I think is really, really good advice. I'm glad you agree. I, and I would assume that that happens mm-hmm. in in a lot of entertainment fields. The same with movies. And uh, I would. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And I, I love that you ask your parents who aren't like <laughs> humors too, because I feel like that's a big thing with like film with me is just like at the end of the day, it's like just like running a rough draft past my parents will point out so many things <laughs> that we probably should have realized and just didn't just from like them being like, well, why is he picking up a cup that's empty? Yeah. Well, what's he going to drink out of it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, well, we're getting close to time. Um, before we go, we always play a little bit of a game with all of our guests. It's a surprise for every for everyone, so you know, <laughs> don't feel um, too upset I, about it. I love it. games. No Bye. <laughs> okay, good. I mean, you yeah, specifically. Exactly. Should. All right. Well, this one is way easier than anything you do. All you have to do is pick a number between one and ten. There is a question associated with that number. And you just have to answer it. Some of them are silly. Some of them are a little more deep. Okay. That's it. None of them are inappropriate, I That's promise. That's fine. Um, number four. Ooh. What is a piece of media? This can be a book, movie, television show, game, whatever, that you would recommend everybody partake in. Read, watch, play. Uh, ooh. I can only choose one. Mm. I mean, like, you can choose more than one, but... <laughs> that's okay. I, I can stick with one. You still have the to pick the first ones. one, and that's always going to be the most important, so... <laughs> right. True. Exactly. The psychology behind it. Um, <laughs> so, I think recently I read all of the um, Expanse novels, uh, or uh, actually, there's, there's going to be nine. There's only eight currently out. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. It got picked up as a TV show, The Expanse, on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, those books are so good. And they're good for for many reasons, um, not just about, if, even if you're not into science fiction, I think they're really good as a way to tell a story. Uh, every chapter is it's sort of similar to Game of Thrones. If you've read those books, each, or sorry, A Song of Ice and Fire, um, each chapter is, I don't, I don't want to get anybody upset about that. <laughs> no, 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 no. I would have I said the same thing. And I was actually just like, Oh, cool. He caught himself. I wouldn't have thought to do that. <laughs> there's, there's some serious rage that can happen if you make that mistake. But um, but yeah, I, I read those books and each chapter is written from a different character's perspective and um, written ideally in their voice. It, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But in The Expanse, uh, it's the author is James S.A. Corey, which is actually a pseudonym for two authors. And they, as far as I'm aware, switch off back and forth between the chapters and the characters. And so each one, each character really feels like it's got its own voice. And I thought that was just something that I really hadn't experienced in that way with any other literature that I'd read. Um, so I would recommend that series of books to anybody. Oh, wow. That sounds amazing. I'm going to check yeah, that out. Yeah, if you're interested in science fiction, totally worth it. No, totally. I was actually just figuring, I'm uh, working my way through like the vagrant novels. So, like, that sounds right up my okay. alley. That's amazing. Well, I hope you like it. All right. Well, is there um, anything that you want to pitch before we go? Uh, or, like, tell people to keep an eye out for? Uh, um, I don't think I can say anything uh, legally. Um, but I, I'm actually... Well, there you go. Actually, I'm <laughs> in five days. I'm starting my new position as the senior designer at Insomniac Games. Um Oh, well, congratulations. Thank you very much. I'm really excited about it. Um, they're a great studio with a great pedigree. And um, what we're going to be working on is going to be incredible. So 
If you weren't already an Insomniac fan, keep your eyes peeled on Insomniac. There's some great stuff to come. Amazing. Well, um, I'm Megan Martin, and I've been Megan Martin, and Janelle has been my extraordinary co-host, and Matthew Foster has been our incredibly awesome guest. And everybody say goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you for having me. Cause and Creation is an all ports open network podcast. You can follow us at cause underscore and underscore creation on Instagram. You can follow Megan Martin on Instagram at hello Megan Martin and me Janelle Megan on Instagram and Twitter at Janelle Megan. And if you'd like to support our network or just support the show, you can head on over to Patreon at patreon.com slash all ports open. Thanks for listening.